Hello, I'm Tom Ferguson and welcome to The Fundamental Molecule. This show explores the intersection of water, technology and entrepreneurship. Each week, I interview innovators, experts, entrepreneurs and investors in the world of water, helping us understand where this trillion dollar industry is headed. These are the stories of the people building the future of the world's most valuable and fundamental resource. Disclaimer, Tom Ferguson is the managing partner of Bird Island Ventures. All opinions expressed by Tom and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Burnt Island Ventures. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be viewed as investment advice or relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Persistence is an underrated quality of the best entrepreneurs. VCs never think they underrate it, but they do. The public only ever sees the glory and fireworks when an entrepreneurial story works, but it's the application, the effort, the persistence that lies behind every great outcome that is that outcome primary determinant. Matt Swindle, the CEO and co-founder of Endline Energy, has it in spades. Not only did he attain the rank of Colonel in the Marine Corps, a rank he retains in the reserves, he and his team are building a potentially enormous company, quietly and methodically. Endline Energy has the potential to turn every sizable boiler in the world into a power plant. Don't worry, he will explain. While another vertical of the business is the best small hydro remediation assessment and upgrade team in the country, if not the world. It's a super business. The return for the customers is enormous, their moat is physics, the tailwinds are global and intense, and it's such a pleasure to learn from Matt as he puts one foot in front of the other. Matt, thank you so much for joining us. How's everything going? Swimmingly well. And it's, I'm glad to be invited here and spend a lot of time with you, Tom. Excellent. Well, we really, really appreciate it. So as with all of our episodes, we are going to start with a little bit of context on you. So why don't you just take a, take a few minutes to walk us through the arc of your career so far so we understand who Matt Swindle is and what he's done. Well, I started uh, growing up as a native of the Washington, D.C. area, went off to college and decided that uh, a career in the Marine Corps to start post-college was something that I wanted to do. Interestingly enough, you know, what's the connection between the Marine Corps, water, you know, entrepreneurial? It's actually my life. And there's actually a couple of other people that are like that. I'm not a one of one. But uh, in the Marine Corps, I got exposed to a lot of diverse thoughts. You got to think on your feet. You got to constantly be innovating because, you know, we, as we say, the enemy gets a vote. You got to be out in front of them all the time. I was fortunate enough that I've been part of five different startups within the Marine Corps that I either co-founded or founded within the Department of Defense. That kind of got me to supportive mentors, vision statements, putting really good, fast-moving teams together with impact metrics because everything in the Marine Corps is, what have you done for me today? And that's what they really care about. I decided that getting shot at and getting blown up was not what I wanted as a long-term career. So I got out of the Marine Corps in 2007. Thanks to a dear family friend, he said, why don't you come look at the alternative energy space? One, I knew nothing of the alternative energy space, but being a mission-driven dude, I said, okay, I'll go interview. And lo and behold, I went to work for a company called Enernum, and they did something called demand response. And basically, when the grid is stressed, rather than turn on a peaking gas power plant that just sits idle 364 days of the year, they went out and signed up a whole bunch of commercial industrial customers that when... The grid was about to fail. So proceeding a brown or blackout, they would reduce their electric demand. And all that got bit into a system, except there was no carbon emissions. It was completely virtual, saved the world. 
I started working with water utilities in California and starting to learn. This is circa 2007, 2008. That led me into the water industry and learning some of their problems. And from there, spawned the company that I'm with right now is called Enline Energy. We recover wasted energy from man-made processes, initially focused on small hydropower. And that's where you and I met through the Imagine H2O competition circa 2015, 2016. And then most recently in the last five years, spinning off into thermal energy recovery. I guess the interesting piece on me is, is that I would say that I've been fortunate enough to start seven different entities. And I was with Enernoc pre-IPO through post-IPO. So got to see it. The biggest defining factor for me were where innovative organizations, whether big or small, what were their successes and failures through that, having been at this for about 25 years. That's me in a nutshell. I, I live here with my wife and son in Swarthmore, Pennsylvania, where I'm calling you from right now. Well, they work very hard, I hear. They do. The old Swarthmore College work ethic. Even I, from not of this parish, have heard about that. That's really, absolutely fantastic. Really, 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 really helpful. Just immediately, what's the, what do you think the biggest difference between your first and seventh entrepreneurial endeavor was? The first one, I had no idea what entrepreneurism or innovation meant. You just went and did what you thought was the right thing. So for me, it was, well, I've got to make this inefficient process more efficient. I've got to decrease the workload for, let's just say, this platoon that's out there. I need to shortcut the system and find a better way to fund something internal to the DoD. Now I'm fast forwarding to my seventh. And what I'm finding is the commonality is actually people. It is gaining trust. It is understanding what makes certain people tick and drive, and then creating certain motivators for them to execute on a vision or overcome whatever obstacle. And that could be an employee, that could be an investor, that could be a client. That's the common thread that I didn't realize on number one, is is that innovation and entrepreneurialism is 100% a people business. If you go into that with a talent management mindset from the onset, you'll be wildly successful. And I did not do that for startups one through six. Do you think there's a limit to the degree to which that is important? And the reason I ask is that often I see people respecting that idea up to a point and then kind of getting impatient and then being like, ah, they'll do. And usually downstream of that is like quite a lot of trickiness. We've seen amazing work by you and Shane from Green and various others who have just stayed locked on the problem of finding the right person until they find the right person and not a, not a moment before. Do you have any reflections on just how important that is for the entrepreneurial journey? You're triggering a lot of thoughts for me. You know, one that comes to mind is, is that setting a right culture, written out, what do you want the culture of your company, your unit, your household to even be? And what does that look like? You know, give you an example. It's like, we want someone that, let's just use Enline as an example, that will pick up the ball and run with it, even if it's not their job. We want someone that plays by adult rules. And we're a virtual company, and I can talk about that as well. We have been for 14 years. We were not a COVID anomaly. We also want someone that, hey, you know, it's the standard, am I going to go hang out with this person outside of work? Can I go on a two-day camping trip with them, just the two of us? And are we going to get along? And those are the tests and some of the questions we asked in the interviews to make sure that this is a two-way street. They're getting, you know, what we want. They get what they want. I will also say is leading big organizations, and I'm talking three to 500 
people down to a 10-person company at some point, and this is a lesson that I'm still learning to this day, you just have to trust that your guidance is being followed. And then you jump in and you reinforce the positives and you stamp out the negatives really quickly. And the negatives could be a bad Apple employee that got through the cracks. It could be creating those enduring habits and rituals that keep everyone looking forward and everyone knowing, even in the darkest of times, everyone is pulling the same or you just might not be able to see it because there's a, this fog and mist. Could be the fog of war, literally. Or it could be that, hey, you're separated by 2,500 miles and you don't see what your counterpart is doing on an everyday basis. It all comes down to building trust is really the biggest thing. And I'm still working on it to this day. Yeah. Well, it's never done. But when you have it, it's so powerful. So N-Line Energy, first things first, and it's very embarrassing. I don't know. Why the name N-Line Energy? So go back to 2010. This was about the time that the renewable portfolio standards here in the United States were coming online. You had feed-in tariffs, which are the ways that you can monetize renewable power. The solar market was starting to take off. When was closely behind? And we had a whole bunch of mandates in several states, Massachusetts, New York, California, Hawaii. They were like, we're open for business. Going back to my Internoc days with our water utilities, the problem we were trying to solve for is, is they put enormous amounts of energy into collecting, treating, moving, storing, delivering, recollecting, retreating, redistributing water. When you're anywhere in the world that has any type of grade, meaning elevation drop, when you start to put that, in this case, water or wastewater in that conduit or pipeline, and you start dropping down in elevation, you build up too much pressure. So one foot of elevation drop is 0.433 PSI. Sorry to nerd out on you. But at, let's say, 400 feet, you have about 180 PSI in the pipe. Well, the average shower pressure is, let's say, 15 to 30 PSI. So if I put 180 PSI into your water heater or your shower, that's going to be a very bad day for your water heater or you, depending on what it is. So exactly, go through the wall. That's right. The water utilities are kind of on the horns of a dilemma. Do I, A, do I put in a higher pressure class of pipe, which gets exponentially more expensive every pressure class I add to it? Or do I simply just use a common tool that's on our stovetop, a pressure-reducing valve or a pressure cooker? You turn on the heat, liquid turns to vapor, the vapor builds up pressure and then closes a little contact, heat and noise go off, wasted energy. So we have all this water under pressure and it's getting blown off at these tens of thousands of pressure-reducing valves. And we thought to ourselves, well, that's an opportunity to recover that wasted energy. It's renewable. After all, it's water. And the best part about it is there's no bald eagles living inside of a pipeline last I checked. So environmentally, it's kind of benign. Hydro gets a bad rap and there's frankly a certain damn hydro that needs to go away because it's not serving a really good purpose. But we said, you know what? This is an underserved market and we're going to go after it. That in 2010 was the impetus for N-Line Energy, the name. We came up with all kinds of names. We brainstormed. We were like Sapphire Power and Bright Blue Energy and all that. One of my peers came out and said, wait a minute, what's other words for pipelines? And we're like, conduit in the lines. He's like, there it is, N-Line Energy. So it was I-N-L-I-N-E, but people kept mixing it up and conflating it and misspelling it. So we just went with the N-Line Energy, and that's the impetus. So what we want to do is convey that we're in the lines or in the pipelines or canals or conduits and flumes, and that is where the gold is that wasted energy. Fantastic. So walk us through 
your experience on site with utilities in kind of the first iteration of business or the earliest kind of years of the business? Like, what did that look like? How, what did it end up looking like? And what led you to, we'll go on to this, but what led you into the move into thermal? What was it like being on those sites and making those sales? Let me set the mood for you. It's 2010 California water. Um, <laughs> it's the Wild West back then. You know, the, the old saying, whiskey's for drinking, water's for fighting. It still exists to this day. So our early advisors said, you know what? There's one conference you got to go to. It's the Association of California Water Agencies, ACWA, Aqua, Land words. Let's call it 450 of the largest water utilities in California. And the people that go there are all their general managers, operations managers, general counsel. So it's the decision makers. So I get up there and I'm about PowerPoint deep and with no projects, no customers, self-funded by the bank of Matt Swindle. And I'm presenting myself as Endline Energy, hot off the presses with my new LLC. We're going to save the world by doing Conduit Hydro. I think there were six people in the audience out of an attendeeship of like 1,800. And we're at the very last presentation on the very last day in you know the very back room of this whole thing. So I tell them what my... Basically, I got up there and I said, I have no credibility. I come from the power sector. I think this is the opportunity for you and I would like to explore it. So I just... Mia culpa. I just said what it was and this is the opportunity. Five of those six people got up and walked out and I heard mutterings of, what a waste of time. <laughs> okay, fair. And then one guy approached me and he came up and he was taking notes and he goes, so tell me more about this. And that half hour presentation spun into a two and a half hour beer at the bar and back and forth and under me learning as much from him as the other way around. This gentleman's name was uh, Robert uh, DePremio. And Bob was the uh, senior vice president at the time of operations for the San Gabriel Valley Water Company. This is a private water utility that's regulated by the uh, California Public Utilities Commission. And he had a vision having just stepped into that job and having been in the water utility business for at that time, 30 plus years of, wow, I had a similar thought about all this wasted energy recovery. And oh, by the way, I have a couple of sites I'd like to explore with you. That was our first customer. So that was in the fall of 2011. We inched into it and we said, hey, we'd like a little bit of money to do a pre-design. Sure. There's an off-ramp. If we pump this in the cheap seats or it's not worth your while, let us go. And then we said, okay, it looks like a green. Let's go to the next. Let's do detailed design. He said, go. He was our champion. Two years later, we had the first net zero water treatment plant installed and operating in mid-2013. And that's they have not had an electric bill since the commissioning of that project. And it remains one of the only net zero water treatment plants in the state. That was our takeoff moment. Because we, and we screwed things up royally on that project, let me just tell you. <laughs> but we confessed, we corrected it sometimes at our loss, and we made sure he was happy. And then he went, he helped us market to several other customers. And in fact, we built another hydropower project for them several years later. He's a dear friend. I went to his son's commissioning, ironically, in the Marine Corps of all places. I thoroughly enjoy my discussions with him. So, the lesson I learned is, is that don't fake it. Tell people exactly where you are as a company. You know, the old adage, you know, you're never going to be able to convince everyone out. You just have to convince one. That's what it took. And I'm, I'm very grateful to Bob and the San Gabriel Valley Water Company team for taking a chance on us and allowing us to officially skyrocket in the small hydro field. It's such an important and such a crucial relationship, right? The first person that 
believes in you and gives you the access, especially in the context of the utility system. But I love that message about transparency. Everybody always needs to pretend that they're kind of, I don't know, like LeBron or whatever, whereas actually what you need to find somebody who can trust you to learn well. I'm more of a Scotty Pippen kind of guy. I'm a little more flamboyant, you know, like the finger roll. Well, I'm a big Thierry Henry guy, so... Okay, you know, I'll take that. Play, play basketball. <laughs> anyway, so... They, did, they uh, didn't have basketball in the Highlands of Scotland? Yeah, so. not much. <laughs> not Actually, much. not you know, about the football. Was I it would a, be getting into shit. A, Barney Crawford, if you ask, who is also a dear family friend of ours, is the Pele of Shinty. But now we really are digressing. We are off topic. <laughs> now we're really digressing. But those, the first relationship is so enormously crucial. This is exactly one of the things that we are most boring about. And I know that um, you are the recipient of us being boring about it. You guys are actually great at this. But the importance of like transparency of communication, the base part of that being kind of the monthly update or the quarterly update or whatever it is stage appropriate. Fail. For you guys. I, I fail. Oh my God. We're still doing these like three years in. We're going to put about to send our 35th and they have been absolutely crucial in people just getting to know us scalably. Do you know why like, I think I'm doing this podcast? Because you just want to reemphasize that point that I don't communicate well enough. You do. Yeah. You do. We just happen to do it directly. We just happen I, uh, to do it directly. We get all of the information we need. Yeah, it's a really big one. What did the rest of that period of time look like? And what took you into the thermal business? We started getting additional customers while we were building the St. Gabriel Valley Water Company project. We made it a goal. We had a very targeted, a lesson that I learned is, is that don't try to boil the oceans and don't get sidetracked by mission creep. And what I mean by that, that's a Marine Corps term of, uh, or military term, you don't want to get diverted off what you think your core value proposition is unless there's certain metrics that are met. And I'll explain why we decided to take a little bit of a right turn for the thermal energy recovery. But we had opportunities to go do big damned hydro, pumped hydro storage, very complex FERC license sites that would have drugged the whole company down into a large and theoretically profitable project, but it got away from our core business offering. And just keeping those blinders on for the initial phases of the company while the thesis plays out was really important for us. So you know, our go-to-market strategy was less shotgun and more sniper rifle. So we focused only on municipalities in California because we needed to understand things like water rights and interconnection rules and the hierarchy of municipal boards, how canal systems worked and were designed. We learned all those things over time. We got to the point in about 2018 that we were doing over 90% of all small hydro development in the state. And we knew that because you have to file with FERC. Back that up two years. At those same conferences, the gas company came to because both electric and gas are some of the main drivers for the water utilities, gas-powered pumps, electric-driven pumps. And their CTO for Southern California Gas Company came up to us and said, you know what? You guys are onto something. We really like what you're doing, recovering wasted energy at the water utilities. Have you looked at commercial industrial boilers? No, we have no idea what you're talking about. And he explained, there's this small group of boiler manufacturers in the US and Canada and Mexico. They make boilers and wait for it, teeny, small, medium, large, and extra large. Just can sizes. Coming across custom boilers is just not a common thing. And then they sell the boilers to you based on the pressure and the steam flow that you need to drive whatever process you're doing. So it could be heating, cooling, pasteurization, sterilization of a hospital, just limitless uses for steam. And right now, it's the only medium that can transfer that high of a heat. So we're talking like 450 degrees to 1500 degrees. It's there. It's not getting displaced anytime soon. 
They further explained how when someone sells this, of which Southern California Gas sold a lot of these and put them in between, let's say, the 50s and 90s, they're typically overpressurized and they're too big for what they need. So based on how the steam tables work, you make your steam at a high pressure and you want to guess what's sitting right at the tip of the boiler before they send it out. It's a pressure reducing valve. There it is. So they're blowing, they're putting all this natural gas or biomass or whatever the heat source to fire this boiler up. And then they're breaking all this energy in their boiler room. And the eureka moment was, wow, that sounds a lot like what the water utilities are doing. In fact, it's an exact parallel. We were like, wow, this is really interesting. We'd like to learn more. He goes, we've done a worldwide search of every technology. You need to go talk to these guys down here in Santa Ana, California. They have invented, we think, the world's most efficient turbine by a factor of two. We said, did you just say it's 100% more efficient than any steam turbine in the world? And they said, yes, we did. And we verified it. My chief engineer laughed out loud. He's like, you're violating some law of thermodynamics right there. You go, the guy just deadpanned. He goes, go talk to him and then come back and apologize to me. We did. This gentleman was had attended Caltech. He advanced a 1700s design called the Euler design. And he did a, a very in-depth study of what's called the common steam letdowns of just about all the major commercial industrial processes, colleges, hospitals, pharmaceuticals, paper and pulp and so refineries, so on and so on. And he found that there was a market that really wasn't being served in about the 275 kilowatt market, so sub 300 kilowatt. And this design was a piece of turbo machinery that has very unique characteristics to it that it basically spins twice as fast as anything else out there, hence you get double the efficiency. That by itself makes uneconomical projects economical And then in many states in the US, you have to show a minimum efficiency threshold of 65%. Well, this starts at 60 and goes to 80, whereas every other steam turbine in the world kind of nets out at about 42%. So for the same BTU input in, you're getting double the kilowatt hours out. We thought to ourselves, that's a market differentiator. And there's nothing that's going to displace that in the near term for the market segments that we went after. So we hired a president of a business unit, Nate Turner, fantastic in 2018. We said, let's go self-fund this with our profits from Hydro. We started getting our initial customers and that luckily led us to you and Burn Island Ventures. And that led to the acquisition of the IP through exclusive worldwide license. And then we've been scaling on two business units, one still focused on small hydro, but our we think our sustainable growth worldwide is in the thermal energy recovery market, helping customers solve for rising electric rates because we make power behind the meter. We're cutting in their GHG because we lower greenhouse gases on site. So we're not investing in a rainforest reforestation project in the Amazon. We're cutting your GHGs right there at the site and then building microgrids. So for resiliency, that has been a big play. And we finished a huge project last year with University of Idaho that allows their boiler plant to run whether the grid is on or off. They can provide heat and cooling to the entire campus, irrespective of grid conditions. So it's been a fairy tale for us and you've been a great partner for us, Tom, and we're thankful and grateful. It's such a phenomenally compelling opportunity and there is a lot of that that I want to pick apart. I mean, the first thing, because I think this is seriously underappreciated is when the way that people go through the world. Just say a little bit more about how important steam is to the international economy. What are we talking about in terms of its ubiquity? We can extrapolate the world. And in fact, we're still trying to get our finger on the, the world opportunity. But let's just say here in the US, there is 
180,000 commercial industrial boilers that are primed for energy recovery. Now, not every single one of them is there. And we know there's 180,000 almost to the number because it's a main emitting source. And the EPA keeps really good data at the federal and at the state level on all these. So you have all these boilers that there is no technology coming around that's economical that's going to displace that. But when we talk about like impact to the world economy, I mean, just let's just pause on food processing. To blow the potato peel off, you typically have to do high pressure steam to blow that off. I mean, and these are critical processes. The brewing process, something near and dear to my heart and your heart, based on the beers that we've had together. Guilty. Steam. You're not doing it with hot water in most cases. These are super important processes that without steam as the medium, you're not going to get away from. So then the question is, of those in just the US 180,000, one country, fairly industrialized, if I extrapolate that out, there are millions and millions and millions of boilers throughout the world that are running suboptimal. So one of the benefits that we do when we come in is we say, yeah, that 60-year-old pressure vessel that's being held together with duct tape and bailing wire running at, let's say, 72% efficiency, your fuel efficiency is horrible. You're emitting massive amounts of greenhouse gases. Why don't we go ahead and replace that with something more efficient? And then let's optimize it for energy recovery so you have a revenue source to pay it off. So it's a twofer. We're knocking out two with one. If we make even a minimal impact, I think we get to our goal. What I'm in this for, and many of the members of the company is, we're in this to really affect the climate trajectory. So can we combine reduce 500 million tons of carbon through hydro, through these small thermal energy recovery projects with the microsteam? That's where I think the impact is globally on the boiler, which frankly, no one looks in the boiler room. The only people that go in the boiler room is the technician to check it, the boiler maintenance person once a year that comes in, and some of the chemical companies and us. That's it. We want to get in there and we want to help them solve these problems. It's such an interesting kind of idea about this theme of like, literally what room are you in and how much money and time and energy and worry gets spent in that room? A lot. And how crucial is that room to the operation of it? (laughs) It's a really interesting medium for the diagnosis of a, like a true pain point or a true kind of value entry point. Here's a pain point for you. So after 2008, a lot of the boilers that were end of life, so 30, 40 years, typical lifespan, you could do retubing and things like that. After the economic turndown, the last thing that got replaced was the boiler because it's an OPEX cost. They're literally limping along. And in some cases, let's say you have a mom and pop sawmill that only has one boiler and that steam that they produce. So in a sawmill, you're shaving lumber, let's say dimensional lumber. You're getting uh, uh, wood chips and sawdust. They scoop it up and they throw it in this biomass boiler. So 100% green. They're using pretty efficiently their waste product and they make steam. And that steam primarily goes out to what's called a kiln. And that kiln dries the wood that they just cut. It cures it based on whether a hardwood or a softwood. And once it's cured, it's ready to go off the market. If your boiler breaks, one, while you have your product in there, you could have $30,000 to $100,000 worth of product in the kiln. And if you stop the steam process at the wrong time, all that wood's gone. You're going to turn it back into sawdust or sell it as markdown, lower grade of wood. If your boiler goes out completely, you're losing hundreds of thousands of dollars a day. There's no redundancy at some of these smaller mills. And with the add-on, the the fluctuation of uh, lumber prices globally with tariffs and things like that, they're looking for anything to give them more resiliency, more reliability, so that they're not threatened with their business operations. Absolutely. 
you guys have got a really interesting approach to your like overall sales side because this is tricky but the key is that there's a really compelling opportunity kind of at the at the end of that but before we go there could you just sort of demystify a little bit about the world of kind of grants and investment tax credits for these kinds of interventions because i think it's kind of quite poorly understood generally when we go in i mean the main economic driver for this is electric prices we're going in, we're using this wasted energy uh, resource in the case of steam pressure with the flow, normally being vented by a pressure reducing valve. We're diverting it and sending over our turbine and we're making electrical power to be used behind the meter. Translated, it means you don't have to buy as much power from your local electric utility. And that's the savings. That's the big driver for a lot of these. That's where a lot of the economics come from. But on top of that, either at the called the independent system operator or regional transmission operator. These are the regional grid operators, the state level, or the local electric or gas utility. There is typically a grant or subsidy anywhere from 10 to 70% of the total project cost. Because this type of project fits multiple definitions, you could be categorized as combined heat and power, distributed generation, permanent load reduction, energy efficiency, we fit multiple definitions and the states, they're not able to get these types of projects technically or economically through the goal line. So we scratch a lot of the itches that a lot of these granting agencies want to see in terms of good holistic behind the meter projects. On top of that, under the Inflation Reduction Act that uh, President Biden administration signed last year, I think we're a little over a year into it. All of our projects initially qualify for 30% tax credit. On top of that, if you're a domestic content provider, meaning your steel and iron content of what you're providing is uh, wholly US, and there's some nuances to that, but we qualify, you get an additional 10%. So now we're up to 40%. And then on top of that, there's something called an energy communities map. And these are areas that are focused on uh, essentially uh, coal mines, coal divestiture areas, natural gas power plants, and then the supply chains that get them out. Those areas qualify for an additional 10%. So you can get up to 50% tax credit if you are a taxable entity. If you're a nonprofit, there's a concept called the direct payment option. What that means is that you get a check in lieu of a tax credit. So if I'm a hospital that happens to be operated as a nonprofit, and I normally I would not get any tax treatment or have to enter a very complex uh, deal under some type of uh, sale leaseback arrangement with a third party, I just get a check after my project is done. And that encouraged more adoption of these renewable and clean energy technologies. The net result is, is that we've had customers down to a zero-year payback, and the average is about 1.8 years. These are highly incentivized projects, and that's probably going to extend all the way to 2033, based when we transition over to the new version of the investment tax credit, January 1st, 2025. Life is good if you're a customer right now from an economic perspective. Typically, we don't lead with that. We want to find a good technical site that is solving a problem for you. But once we do, there's money uh, that abounds. Yeah, it's pretty spectacular for a kind of a, an average selling price of yours to be talking about those kind of payback numbers, especially for anybody who spent time around normal IRR thresholds. Around municipalities, yes. Yes, yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly. I want to take you back to, the, to your kind of overall thesis of company building. You mentioned just very briefly that you finance the thermal unit out of the profits of the initial core hydro business. But one of the things that defines you guys as a team, one of the things that I was most attractive to is your, well, your overall attitude to unit economics, but the defensiveness of your financial management. How have you thought about the financial side 
of building your business? Well, I think this is also a good time to disclose that the co-founder of the company is also my stepbrother, Gene. <laughs> we'll get onto that. We'll get onto that. But I think there's a nice <laughs> parlay into how we think. When we initially started the company, our, our initial idea is we were not going to raise any capital. We were going to finance this out of our personal bank accounts. And frankly, after a while, when we needed to bring on people, when we were signing contracts and customers relying on us, there just wasn't enough money there. We did a, a friends and family angel round that converted into what we would call our Series A for the hydro. That initial group of investors were absolutely phenomenal. They were supportive. They were trying to do what they could do to push the ball forward. Back to my stepbrother, Gene. We are diametrically opposed in terms of personality. I'm the up and out salesy, I want to go spend money and boil the oceans. And since he's not on this podcast, he's the curmudgeonly gnomish guy who holds on to all the money in the minds of Warrior sure. and slaps your hand as it comes down. I'm going to hear about this at a family dinner. But it's because of the way that he views the world, his deep understanding of finance and how business works coming from the public M&A market where he led that for a publicly traded company. He saw the demise of many small businesses and he, he was the defender of the realm. So the lesson that we learned is, is that don't hire like-minded people. It's okay to have adversity. And we certainly locked up multiple times where, you know, we had to have a couple come to Jesus's along the way. And we came out, you know what? We're still here 14 years later. And a lot of our peers are not. And it's because of the judiciousness of not just how we managed our cash flow, but also how we approached funding. We did it as a last resort. I'd say, if anything, we were a little too stingy. We probably should have raised a little bit more money earlier on to give us more. I'd say we expended a lot of staff calories, like biting our fingernails at some point based on wild cash flow fluctuations. Sure. Customers don't want to pay us on time. I don't know if your listeners know that's a yeah. thing. Who knew? But we have to pay our subcontractors and everybody else on time. Otherwise, we lose business. So I would say Gene and I have a really good relationship. And it's that uh, yin and yang, black and white, me good, him bad moment that really makes things go round. No, it's spectacularly effective. It's one of the best things about it. Because the other thing is that you just have your future in your own hands. Nobody can tell you that you're not allowed to do this anymore because you don't have this kind of like line plunging towards zero that you desperately have to go and like convince other people to. I mean, going through the round that you're going through at the moment, and it's not completely on your terms. You know, you're not going to be able to get stripes valuation or whatever, but like, it's pretty handy when you go into those negotiations. Is there anything you want to say, you know, about that side of things as you go into specifically the kind of the financing world, knowing that you have quite a lot of the leverage as you're discussing with potential capital providers? For us, I mean, having gone and tried to done the traditional venture route out of the gate, I will say enormous time suck. It just, Getting in front of people, am I trying to run a company or am I trying to fundraise? Am I trying to secure customers or am I trying to hire employees? The answer is yes to all of those. And what we found is, is that one of the main deterrents of us going back to raise capital was the perceived amount of time that it would take. And having done this two times, we were very fortunate to find you and your belief in us. But now we're ready to go scale this model because it is scalable. So starting late last year, all the way up to the present day here in um, early September, being very selective and targeted about who we went and talked to, and, and frankly, being very upfront is, is that here's what we'd like. This is our plan. Does this fit your investment thesis, Mr. Mrs. Family Trust, venture capitalist, private equity, whoever it might be? And if it doesn't, please give us a quick no. And that 
kind of that change of how things really preserved a lot of the time so that we could go back and do the things that actually make us and our investors and our clients happy is putting these projects in on time and on budget. Pretty confident based on how things are going that we'll, we will close our round here relatively shortly and be able to smartly scale over the next five years that will start to hit some pretty impressive metrics. I agree with you. In between the where you are now and where you want to get to is the navigation of, you know, these are big capital projects. It just kind of takes time. Talk to us about how you're managing the sales cycle and how you would advise other people who between them and their dreams is just an ability to kind of manage the decision process of people who, for whatever reason, take some time to make decisions. But once they do, there's something awesome at the end of it. How do you manage that process? I will tell you, having been in sales for even back in my Marine Corps times, I had to sell people in my vision for some of those initial startups. I think expectation setting both with your customer and internally is probably the biggest thing and asking really hard questions upfront. So I'll have a third lesson here, but both hydro and our thermal energy recovery are incredibly long sales cycles. They're very complex sales. This is not a point of service. I download an app off the app store or I go buy an iPhone and I port all my stuff over 20 minutes later and walking out high-fiving. Wow, that was super easy. This is not easy. It is very complex work. You know, you're talking about thermodynamics, you're talking about electrical engineering, you're talking about interconnections in a semi-regulated area. So our typical development timeline on a, on a project is about a little over a year. We're trying to move that back with certain improvements that we're making to our process. The point being, when we talk to a customer for the first time in sales, what we're trying to do is one, define qualification. And qualification is not just, is my product good in a technical fit? There's more that goes to it. And we've learned that, is this a good operational customer? Meaning, is it a mom and pop that's just hanging on and they might not be in business in a year? That, that should be a key indicator. You know, what does the facility look like? How do the employees address you? There's certain cultural things that they want. When we walk in the plant, do they have a safety plan? In whatever business that you're in, those are all leading indicators of, is this going to be a successful project or not? And if you're just starting off and you don't have those things that you don't typically look for, you're going to be chasing your tail and you're going to spend 90% of your time on a project that's going to produce 10% of your revenue. And you want to try to invert those numbers. And we learned some hard lessons overall. The second thing is like, when we do qualify, technically qualify it, what the additional questions are that most people don't feel comfortable asking, are you paying for this? When is the money available? Who decides on this? And who's signing my contract? By the way, early stage, here's my agreement. Let's start talking about this now so that if there's any red flags, I'm not wasting your time or my time with that. And I think the expectation setting is a really important piece. And I think the, the third one is don't offer anything for free and know when to walk away. Mm -hmm. It is incredibly hard for a new company to say no to a potential customer because you want to prove to them, you want to make a sale, you want to prove to yourself, your team and your investors that you can do this. But in some cases, and it should be the minority, if you have a really good go-to-market strategy, you need to walk away from a customer or at least put them on the back burner and run back to them at a later, at a later point. Those are some key lessons on the sales cycle. Now, specific to us, our sales cycle might be six months to a year. And the reason why is, is that it depends on when we approach a customer. I could have missed their capital budget plan by one day, and I got to wait a whole nother year before they come around if I can't find a financing package for them. So what we do to that, to counteract that, is we have an enormous sales pipeline. We go through, we qualify everyone, we ask the hard questions, they have our contract. 
And then in some cases, we just have to sit and wait until they make a decision and then they happen. So that's happening right now. We're, we're actually getting dividends on the projects that we initially contacted, let's say in Q4, or Q1 of this year are now closing this year to set them up for an installation next year. And just have to be patient. Partnering with a, an investor like yourself that has a long-term vision and sees the value proposition all the way around, also incredibly important. Not going to bang on private equity, but I am. Do it. Yeah, I'm going to do it right now. They tend to have a little bit more narrower short-term focus. And if you're just, especially in the water industry, where it's a long sales cycle, not just in steam, but in anything water-centric for the most part, dealing with municipalities where you're delivering true value, it's a slow adoption curve. And then you start to pick up and pick up and pick up. But that could take two or three years. So you got to have someone, there's some patient capital there, I think is the other lesson. Yeah. I really like the kind of the visual metaphor of the conveyor belt is that everyone gets very scared about long conveyor belts. They shouldn't be. What they should be focusing on is once you have set up a long conveyor belt and you then have stuff falling off the end of it, how regularly does that stuff fall off the end of it? Because if you can bridge that gap and if you've got stuff falling off the end of it, that is like awesome for the customers and you know profitable for you and will never get uninstalled and will provide adequate revenue streams, all the other stuff that you need it to do then you've got something that's really powerful because it just, you know, walks like a moat, quacks like a moat. This is something tough to set up. And once you have it, it's really quite defensible, even just for the patients. How else do you think about your moat as a business? How do you, how do you think about your kind of competitive positioning? Other than the, the IP itself. Yeah. So physics. <laughs> physics helps. That's on our side. It's tilting the scales in our favor. I would say that we got punched in the face so many times in hydro. Typical hydro development timeline is like two and a half to three years on a project that has environmentally and regulatory benign. That's just how long it takes. And that's moving at the speed of relevance. For the same money, both for our customers and for us, a typical project, a thermal project can be in in about a year. And our customers are going to get appropriate amount of savings and we're going to earn about the same amount of margin. So we focus on that. Because we got punched in the face so much, we had to innovate and refine our processes internally from a development process to get so specific. I'm, I'm talking in some cases down to the day, like what the project manager had to do to the day to make sure to optimize that timeline so that we were putting this in on time. We took all that knowledge and we imported that over into our thermal business. So a solar provider decides, I want to get into the thermal energy recovery business. It's hard. You've got to have those processes there. I think the other one that we've built up over the last four years is really good moats and, and drawbridges and battlements with key industry groups. So I would say the, uh, the wood products industries in the US have been very open arms and very, what you would think was traditionally not that innovative or not that forward-leaning, wrong assertion, quite the opposite. Hospitals, colleges, now pharmaceuticals, and now even some international sites in specific countries where they have real grid problems are now coming to us. So we're building up trust one installation at a time. And then they're going to their industry conferences and they're talking about, oh, wow, this was a really good idea. Now everyone's in a race to second place. So we're there. And those are kind of the moats that we have. And I would say that the biggest one is just customer goodwill. The mark of success in our company is a referenceable customer. Everything else is noise. If I have a referenceable customer that is pleased with the level of work and the equipment that went in, and it did what we say it did uh, six months, a year later, that just allows your company to scale. And it's worked very effectively for us. 
Fabulous. Matt, thank you so much. We've come to our last question, which is, and there have been an awful lot of lessons so far, and I really, really appreciate all of your reflectiveness and insight. But if you were to choose one, the biggest lesson that you would like all of our, our listeners to take away with them from your experience of being a company builder within water, what would it be? Spend an inordinate amount of time finding the right people to work with you in your business internally. Don't make an impulsive hire. Spend the time and focus on it. And if you get that right internally and your gears internally mesh, everything is easier. And that necessarily wasn't the case here at Enline. I've seen it in other military units and other companies. It's about the people and the culture are probably the two most important aspects of what a successful business does, agnostic of whatever you're offering them. So that's where I focus a lot of my attention. And frankly, even in my own company, I'm trying to change a couple of things that I frankly should have led with back in 2010. I'm still learning and I'm still iterating. So we do part two of this next year. Yes. I'll come and I'll tell you how I, how I did. That's awesome. But thank All you. right, we'll hold you to it. Accountability. That's right. A key part of the culture of the fundamental molecule, I guess. Matt, thank you so much for spending the time. It's always great to chat and we'll speak to you soon. Thanks, Tom.